Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the amazing leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I had an incredibly moving conversation with John Unger, Senate Minority Leader in West Virginia. We talked about the changing politics of West Virginia and rural America and what that means for Democrats, about the mental health pandemic beneath the COVID pandemic that's not getting near enough attention, and how we need a serious investment in human capital to recover from the last 18 months. We also talked about his inspiring work as a pastor and around the world with refugees and those in need, including his work with Mother Teresa. Yes, that Mother Teresa. The poem that inspired him to live a life of service and his hope that we can rediscover the connections and community that make us uniquely American. John Unger, welcome to an honorable profession. Thanks for having me, Debbie. It's great to see you and really excited to to talk to you about what's happening in your state and around the country. I'd love to talk a little bit to start with about West Virginia. You were elected uh, as a senator back in 1998, I believe, first time when you were 28 years old. You've been doing this for a while, so you've got a great perspective. And one of the things I, I wanted to talk about is when, we, when people think about West Virginia, I know they think about this ruby red state, but that's kind of a recent development for our listeners that may not really realize that. You know, back in when you were elected in the, in the 90s, you know, this was a, a state that voted for Bill Clinton twice. At one point, I think in 92, you had a 32 2 majority in the Senate, Democrats did, and a tri- Effecta, uh for for several years in the 90s with the state government and you know fast forward looking you know like it starts about 2014 there's really just a, a flip here right and Republicans now held a trifecta since 2018 and your state handed Donald Trump the second biggest margin of victory behind Wyoming both in 2016 and 2020 so I guess I just want to start with tell us a little bit about that shift in West Virginia and uh, you know the kind of the current politics there. Yeah, well, I think this shift uh, also occurs in in pretty much all rural America, and uh, since West Virginia, the entire state is is the only state that the entire state's in the Appalachian region uh, is very rural. Even the urban city would be considered rural compared within other states. So I think that uh, the shift occurred in the sense that uh, there was a sense of disconnection. Uh, from the National Democrats to the concerns or issues of rural America. I'm not saying that that was actually true, but, you know, perceptions, reality and politics, as you know, and there was a real big perception. And so it occurred, you know, of course, Bill Clinton coming from Arkansas, 
that had a lot of uh, similarities uh, to West Virginia, of course, uh, did very well. But after that, then you had um, other candidates that were more urban. And then, of course, you had President Obama that came from Chicago and uh, and focus a lot, you know, his his perspective and and his experience came from a more urban aspect. And I think over time, the various policies that were being introduced or put through um, did not resonate with rural America. So if you look at the map throughout the country, you know, the red and the blue, you can see that. And since West Virginia all the counties pretty much is considered rural, it would go red. And that's where we are. So in order for Democrats to really start regaining as far as support, again, would be to really start talking about the concerns and issues that do impact the families in rural America. The Democratic Party used to to do that, you know, under Roosevelt with the New Deal, uh, you know, the labor movements. Um, you know, working working families and and things like that, but for for whatever reason, there's a perception that that the Democratic Party has moved away from that and has focused more on urban or suburban uh, areas versus the rural aspects. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you you've been as I mentioned in, in the legislature and the Senate for for quite a while, and you've held on to your seat for for what now? This is your fifth or sixth fifth term, I think. And people might not know that in West Virginia, each district Senate district is represented by two senators that are elected staggered terms, and your seatmate, if you will, is a Republican. So back to kind of what you were talking about, what what do you attribute your success in West Virginia as a Democrat? Is it talking about those kinds of issues that you mentioned, or or why do you think that you've been able to be successful where national Democrats haven't been? Well, as Tip O'Neill would say, all politics is local. And I think that that definitely it's it's to really try to address the concerns and issues that are what people talk about around their kitchen table. And, um, and that's what I really tried to do is to address that. Uh, the national politics, I think, is becoming stronger and stronger as far as um, the influence that people have. So even though, you know, even uh, Senator Joe Manchin always talks about that, uh, you know, he's a West Virginia Democrat, distinguishing from other types of uh, Democrats, but it really comes down to the local level and how do you, you know, how do you proceed as far as policy that impacts their lives? And, uh, and I'll give you a case in point. So one of the aspects when I was majority leader and I was at, with the National Conference of State Legislature, uh, they came to me and they said, hey, uh, uh, the West Wing staff wants to meet with some Democratic leaders. This is when President Obama was in office. And would you be interested? You get a tour of the West Wing and, and they get to talk to you. And I said, sure. You know, I'd never been to the West Wing. So I went over. And sure enough, uh, they put us in the Roosevelt room and they had me. And, and then I noticed that the Kentucky uh, Senate president and, and speaker were there, Wyoming, um, really the coal producing states. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, uh-oh. And so then the, uh, the West Wing folks came out and said, hey, you know, we want to talk to you about climate change and, and uh, global warming. And, and at that point, 
the Kentucky contingency got real worked up. You know, Cole is king, and and there was a lot of discussion and debate and back and forth. And and I thought, well, maybe I need to just slip out of here because this is going to be a no win situation <laughs> between this debate. But then um, they said, well, let's let's hear from the the guy from West Virginia, where you know Cole is prevalent. And and I said that. You know, one thing I mentioned, I said, well, it reminds me of a story of a community organizer in Chicago that when City Hall and the developers wanted to redevelop an area that was blighted, the organizer knew that if he tried to fight City Hall, he would lose because the forces, the market forces, the economic forces and all like that was not going in the direction of that particular community. So instead, he said, you know what, instead of displacing these people, what if you would help them find affordable homes and give them job training and, and you know, help, help the people versus just saying, we're just going to come in here and redevelop and then push these folks out. And I said, you know, you know, uh, it said that's exactly what's happening here in these coal producing states, you know, with these policies of global warming and and uh, you're just coming in and, and and pushing people their livelihoods and of course they're going to hate this hate you because that's the all they have to raise their families and I said by the way you know who that organizer was in Chicago Barack Obama <laughs> and I said why aren't you doing that for these states you know I mean we did it for the tobacco farmers we helped them redevelop and and um, so out of those, those discussions and working with the administration over, over several months, that's when the Power Plus came out of the administration for the Appalachian Regional Commission was to really look at how do we transition uh, states and make them more diverse and economically diverse. And so out of that, that's what it means. But again, the vast majority of those in the West Wing staff was from Chicago and did not understand what the impact would be in the sense of, of those policies onto the people's lives, at least how it would translate in those communities. And so I think that that's, that's a real big issue that we as Democrats really need to start looking at in our, how our policies not only impact the urban or suburban areas, but especially the rural areas. And we can't cancel certain sectors of our society because they're not friendly to us. And the reason they're not friendly to us is because they felt like they've been canceled or dismissed earlier on. And then that creates hostility. Absolutely. And I want to come back and talk about the economy and and how we're going to rebuild post-COVID in your state and others. I I do want to say with national politics for just one second. I'm sure people will be just interested in in your opinion or your perspective on this. You know, obviously West Virginia is getting a lot of national play right now with Joe Manchin, who you mentioned uh, nationally in the 50-50 Senate, and he's wielding a a whole lot of power right now. Kind of what's your perspective on that generally? And, um, And, you know, you were talking about bringing people together around some common goals to help people in rural states like how do you how do you look at what's happening with uh, Senator Manchin's position and power and the dynamics and how, how does that how does that feel to you or how do, what, what do you think about that 
Well, I, I, I think that uh, Senator Joe Manchin is trying to look at the long game because, uh, you know, you know, we had, uh, you know, President Trump administration where it swung to the right, extreme right. And now that, uh, you know, that we have President Biden, I know there's this part, uh, a faction or a group that wants to swing to the extreme left, you know, very progressive. Let's let's get everything done we can do while we're in the White House. And what that does is it creates disruption within the communities. Um, if it's always swinging, that the pendulum's going to the extremes, depending on who's in and out. And I think that, uh, and again, I'm not speaking for Senator Manchin. He can do that very well himself. But what I see is he's trying to look at the long game in the sense that we got to start coming in the middle and quit and quit uh, going to the extremes because the vast majority of Americans are in the middle. Now that some lean, of course, more, more conservative and some lean more liberal, but overall, the idea there is you want to try to bring as many people together as you can to move forward and not just winner take all. Because it's the old concept that Mahatma Gandhi said, if, 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 if we went by the, uh, you know, the principle, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, then all we're going to have is basically a world that's blind and toothless. And, and so, you know, this, this approach of, you know, the winner takes all and, and the idea that the team, this team's in now and we're going to just push our extreme policies and it's just not very productive overall. I appreciate your perspective on that. I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the things that you were mentioning in terms of what's going on in West Virginia and, uh, you know, West Virginia was hurting, frankly, before COVID, right, um, with the economy changing, the coal country, as you said, and now COVID has hit and all kinds of disparities and inequities in terms of access to things like broadband and healthcare and other things have really you know, a spotlight was shown on those. Um, and I think that that was true um, in rural areas across the country. So as you're thinking about building back better, to use the president's term, post-COVID, how we how we come out of this this pandemic and this recession, what are the, some of the things that you're focused on? I, I know that there's been a lot of discussion about broadband and, and infrastructure, and, and absolutely that's needed. There's also a lot of discussion. Maybe we'd even need to do more in the area of public health because, you know, this was COVID-19 and there's no guarantee we're not going to have COVID-23 or COVID-25. There's still that danger out there now that we have to prepare for and, and we need to build up the public health infrastructure. But the one thing that, that hasn't been talked about enough, that actually we, we – we have a pandemic under the pandemic, and, uh, and, and that is the mental health and the addiction aspect. Although very, it was bad going into, into COVID, but it's even worse now as we're emerging. I'm seeing a, a tick up of, of at least 30% of more overdoses of, of people that are having, having str struggling with even depression, anxiety, PTSD. Now, keep in mind, I just want to want you know you understand this that you look at 9/11, the event of September 11th, 
and how that impact the world. And I can remember at many of our functions, you know, when we came together as New Deal leaders, uh, we talked a lot about that and security. And, and, and that was a one-day event that impacted three geographical locations and killed hundreds of people. Now, you look at this event, going over a year plus, and it's, we're still in it, Every geographical location on the planet has been impacted. Every human being has been impacted by this, some worse than others. And more people died per day at one time with this COVID-19 than died on 9-11 every single day. Mm. We are going to be in a, a new world. We're not going to be able to go back. We're only going to be able to go forward. And what's that world going to look like? And what, what we really need to be looking at is, yes, the infrastructure, the public health, and all these things, but what about the worker? And what about the PTSD, the trauma that, that a lot of people have experienced during this course of the year as they've struggled? You know, those are the types of things that, that uh, I don't think we're talking enough about, that as these children that have been at home trying to do remote learning and not having the socialization, the connection. Um, because see, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Mm. And one of the things the Surgeon General said, even when he was Surgeon General under President Obama, now he's under President Biden, is he, he said that the number one public health issue was loneliness and isolation. Well, you think about over a year now when, we, when we, we've drilled into people for social distancing, you know, stay away, and people couldn't hug or come together and talk. And what did that do with isolation and loneliness? And then what's the, what does that manifest in of depression and, and anxiety and, and all these other things that lead to addiction? So if we're going to look at economic recovery, you can hear this, that people are saying, we, we, we have jobs, but there's no workers. Mm. Well, where are the workers? The workers were there prior, but there's a really, there's a hesitant, there's something going on with our labor force that we need to start looking at and investing into our workforce. Because if we don't address that, it's just like... Um, it's just like anything. It just later on, it will manifest later on into different behaviors and to different situations that we'll find ourselves in. But it's already coming about now that the numbers are starting to come out of CDC of what does this, what does this pandemic has done in this area. And so I think that, that I haven't heard us talking too much about that at the national level but I predict that's going to be probably the biggest public health and also even, even workforce or economic development focus that's going to be, be out there very, very soon. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think you're right that we're not talking about enough about this. And I kind of feel like we're, we're all still processing. And like you said, certainly this has affected, you know, people differently across regions and income levels and everything else. But I do feel like, I feel like it's almost, we, 
you know, I've got goosebumps thinking about it. We just like, I don't think we've really come to terms with what we all just went through collectively or to your point are still going through collectively. Do you, you know, you're getting some money from the federal government uh, through the American Rescue Plan and some other federal funds. Hopefully there'll be more coming on through, through things like the infrastructure package and stuff. Are you seeing in your state that there's a recognition of what you're talking about? And do you feel like there's going to be some funds available to address some of this? Well, the funds can be used for that, but no, I, I don't see the recognition in, in, in West Virginia, and I don't see it too much going on even nationally, a conversation about the workforce or the wellness of our workforce. And uh, I know there's a lot of discussion about getting our students you know, back to school, and that's important, but there's not a lot of discussion once they get back, what will they need? It's almost as if they think that they're just going to be able to start from where they they left. I mean, like, okay, uh, we know about a year and a half ago we shut down schools, and but we're just going to start the day the day after that, you know. And and people have moved on. People are different than what they were a year year plus months ago. And uh, I don't think I don't think we're we're even talking enough about that. Of okay. We're going to start, you know, we're starting school in person school back up. And yes, we're getting them back in the classroom. But but these students are going to be very different. And there's going to be a lot of fear of what they've lived through and and maybe a lot of trauma within their homes. Um, I mean, you're talking about situations as far as poverty is concerned, that sometimes schools were the only way they they were able to be fed. And also, uh, I I talked with some of the judges, and they're talking about how abuse and neglect cases are starting to climb. And I said, what's going on? They said, well, it's starting to become uncovered because a lot of these are being, they normally have been reported when the children would go to school, but because they weren't in physically in school, there's no way of catching them. So these types of things are, are, have occurred without having any checks or balances or anything for over a year. Yeah, absolutely. And what do we do as far as in that area? So no, I don't see anything enough being invested in in mental health, behavior health, uh, in the area of addiction, and these things that are going to be, and if anything, let's, let's talk about workforce participation and economic development, because part of it is our labor force that's critical to any type of recovery. And we we have to make sure our, our, our labor force has a sense of wellness. And right now we don't. Yeah, absolutely. I've and there's heard- an urgency about it. You know, as you can see, there's a real urgency uh, as we go back, because if not, we're going to have a lot of problems, even in the workplaces, uh, dealing with stuff, dealing with things that manifest it that comes out of the the pandemic, but doesn't reveal itself till later on uh, when people are returning and we won't have the tools or the capability to address it. And and then there's going to be other problems that will be like a dominoes effect. So, I mean, we really need to start talking about that. And I'm hoping the Biden administration does exactly what they did with COVID and their infrastructure bill, you know, the recovery is to say, okay, now it's the human capital mm-hmm. that we need to look at. And, and along with human capital is developing social capital, 
which is part of developing communities. Robert Putnam wrote a book about 30 years ago called Bowling Alone, where he talked about Alexis Tocqueville of, you know, in the um, democracy in America said that what made America strong was the idea of associations of people coming together as communities, uh, helping each other. And he said, back then, he said, there's a trend going on that people are no longer civically coming together like they used to in America. And that's why he used bowling alone, because there used to be bowling leagues. And now people are doing it alone. And, and if you add social media to it, and you look at that documentary in Netflix called Social Dilemma, where it's even isolated us even more and separated us and divided us. That And then you add the pandemic on top of it, doing social distancing. All of a sudden, this breakdown of, of what is called social capital comes about and communities start breaking down. And then he wrote a book about six years ago called Our Kids, where he said, and, and uh, Professor uh, Putnam said, you know, growing up in Ohio, when, the commu- when people used to say, let's do something for our kids, they meant the kids in the community, like develop a park. Or He said, but today when someone says we're going to do something for our kids, they mean their children alone. Mm. So then you see, now you can see it in policies such as charter schools, and you're seeing the, you know, the educational savings accounts and all those types of things coming out where parents, rightly so, wants to make sure their children have the best education, and they have every right to that. But what's missing is their concern about the other children's education, because their child's eventually going to have to deal with the other children out there, but they don't think beyond, it's what's good for my kid, and don't look at community. And when and we have a, a huge breakdown right now occurring in West Virginia, I can see it, and that's where it creates more isolation loneliness and separation and division that you want to talk about why there's so much division in America is we we're bowling alone or we're gaming alone or we're just watching TV alone whatever it is we're in our own silos and therefore there's there's very very little human connection and that takes out the humanity aspect and so something I'm really hoping that the Biden administration, President Biden says, you know, we need the same type of effort that we had with addressing this pandemic called COVID-19, that now we have this pandemic that's raging underneath, that's creating all these other problems of it's manifesting in, in health issues, both physical and mental in our community that we need to bring in wellness to our workforce so that we can become strong again and go back to what Alexis Stokeville observed in our our country at one time about how we came together and helped each other and made our country strong. Yeah, absolutely. That is so powerful, John. And I mean, I feel like the whole idea that we have lost these connections and these institutions and, you know, our, that is what it makes America, America. Right. And so I, I really, and, and, and mental health piece is so important. So, and I, you have such a unique perspective on all of this, not just because you're a legislator and this is what I'd love to, is a great segue talk about 
you have an incredibly fascinating and, and inspiring, frankly, life that you have, have, have built, again, even outside the legislature. You're a pastor, which we'll come back to and talk about. So you're seeing this really from a unique perspective. And you've also spent a lot of time overseas looking at helping people, just helping people. And I'm going to try to rattle off a few things uh, that you've done because there's so much, but you were a missionary in Hong Kong. You volunteered with Mother Teresa in Calcutta during the moons, uh, monsoons and riots of 1990. You worked with the U.S. Refugee Program, the United Nations Operation Provide Comfort, and the U.S. Agency for International Disaster in their um, response team. And so I, I, I actually wish we had a whole, diff- whole nother hour just to talk about all of this, but I, I do want to spend some time on it. So t- tell me how you got involved in some of this international aid work and international, and maybe how that impacts some of what you just said and, and your work as a legislator. Well, when, of course, uh, one of the things I came from um, a very, uh, a very disruptive uh, uh, home life with poverty and, and of course, uh, uh, very abusive, had also alcohol. And uh, so I, I was searching as I went off to college, first first generation college, uh, and I was searching for purpose. I mean, what is it that I'm meant to do, or who? What am I supposed to do? And I remember coming out of my dorm room one day, and there on the wall was a poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson that was entitled "What Is True Success." course, at that time, I wanted to know what true success was. And the last statement of that poem was, true success is knowing that someone else had breathed easier because you had lived. And so, in a lot of ways, I guess I was driven by wanting to help people not be in a situation that I found myself in earlier. I mean, use that as not as a crutch, as my grandmother would say I could either use my past as a crutch or as a learning experience. And I always think of it as this. Um, and I, I, I do recovery coaching training and, and things like that. And I always tell the class uh, that it's like a pearl or it's like a, a oyster. That in the oyster, whenever there's some type of trauma, some type of pebble, some type of rock or an irritant, it, it can't spit it out. It's always there. The trauma is always going to be there. So it either will kill the oyster, it ultimately consumes it because it just is not able to deal with it, or it, it puts a secretion around that trauma and it turns into a pearl, uh, something of value to others. And so I always think that, you know, our experiences, we can do that. So I, I signed up to become a missionary over the summer, that summer, and I went off to Hong Kong and work, worked with the Vietnamese boat people, and per, particularly the unaccompanied minors that were coming out of, these are children placed on boats uh, without their parents to try to get to the better, to a better world, such as the third world resettling country like United States or Canada or Britain. And so I worked in the camps there. And while I was working there, I came across the Missionaries of Charity, and that's when I was invited to come and do some work in in Calcutta, India, because Mother Teresa at that time, uh, she was interested in setting up a home in Appalachia, and since West Virginia is in Appalachia, she thought it would be a good thing to have someone come over and look at her programs and see 
what could be set up over here. And uh, so while working there, I learned a lot of things. But the one thing that I learned was she had put put me in charge of an area that was uh, flooded out called Pecana, which is a, a slum area outside of outside of Calcutta. And there's uh, riots breaking out between the Hindus and the Muslims and and disruption was occurring. And so I was very young, you know, in 20, 21 years old. And she put me in charge of a six block area to do relief work and feeding and, and shelter and so forth. But I was overwhelmed. And so one day sitting and reporting back to Mother Teresa, I said, Mother, there's disease and dying everywhere. People are being uprooted and killed. And I don't feel like I'm, I'm making a difference. And, um, and she patiently listened to me and, and she said something that I've tried to come by, to live by. She said, John, God doesn't call us to do great things. God calls us to do small things with great love. And if you look at that, that's exactly what her life was, of doing the small things with great love. And so I guess that's been kind of my drive. And uh, eventually I did go into ministry, as you mentioned. Uh, I'm a, a Lutheran pastor of a church in Harpers Ferry. I'm also a United Methodist minister in a church in Harpers Ferry and an Episcopal priest in a church in Harpers Ferry. So I cover those three denominations and looking at it from an ecumenical aspect, I guess in some ways, um, being a, a New Deal leader, I mean, that's what we try to do is we try to be problem solvers where we, we're not partisan, really. I mean, we do carry the Democratic label, but that doesn't stop us from reaching across the aisle and talking with all kinds of folks uh, and trying to come to, to solution or, or to solutions to these problems. And and I guess that's what I've always applied, and that's why I've always been so drawn uh, to the New Deal uh, movement is because uh, we don't let partisanship get in the way of, 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 of practical policy and problem solving. Yeah, well, thank you for that. I, I want to ask you one question, which I should have asked before we got into some of the, the overseas work you did, you know, and you, you, you mentioned, I'm glad you did that you were a first generation college goer in your family that you actually went on to, you know, you've got a really long education uh, resume as well. You went on to be a Rhodes Scholar, you got your JD from Georgetown Law. A lot of people in your situation might not have had the same, the same path that maybe wouldn't have been able to, to do what you've done. Is, are there things from your childhood or growing up that you attribute to, to putting you on the path? that you eventually were able to succeed? Well, I want to clarify something. I, I didn't get my JD from Georgetown. I did study law there, uh, but I, I received the call to go into ministry. So I moved from human law into God's law into theology. So I did get my uh, divinity, master's of divinity from Wesley Theological Seminary in D.C. So, but but I did study law at Georgetown, um, but didn't get the JD. I don't know. It just seems in some ways, um, I hate to say this, but I'm kind of, I look at my life sometimes and laugh like a Forrest Gump. Things that I thought that I was going to do uh, never really panned out. But um, for some reason, you know, doors were closed and windows were open and opportunities came about. And, and uh, I guess I just tried to, 
you know, follow the the path where I would make the biggest impact. You know, people I know they they aspire to to actually be something. You know, that I want to be president of the United States, or I want to be U.S. senator, or I want to. For me, I, I aspire to do something. So, it, I look at positions more like tools that can I will this position allow me to to make a bigger impact in being able to accomplish what what is called to be accomplished, then I would go for that. So it's a little bit different how I navigate it of I didn't set my sights to be anything. What I did was to set my sights to be able to do as much as I can with what I got with the time that I have. And, you know, Debbie, I look at my life and both my parents died at the age of 65. Mm. And and you think about this, and I was a, a hospice chaplain for a number of years, and you would think that would be depressing of people who are, you know, preparing to die. But it was so inspiring because it allowed them to focus what was important to them in their life versus, you know, just trying to go along to get along. And uh, each and every one of those the regrets that ever came out was never, I wish I had become, you know, the CEO of that company, or I wish I had gotten a bigger house, or I wish, you know, all those wishes of, of those so-called successes that many people put on your resume as, as a success. No, what it boiled down to is I wish I had better relationships with my, my children or with my parents or with my friends or it really boiled down the relationships at the end of the day. And, um, you know, I'm really impacted uh, by the movie, The Mission. I don't know if you've ever seen it, where the Jesuits uh, uh, stand up for the people in South America. And at the end, it, it really comes down to how will they be remembered? And they're not going to be necessarily remembered by in the history books, but in, in the people's hearts. And so, in essence, it's that's exactly, I think, at the end of the day, when you look back on your life and and it goes back to that quote, to help someone else breathe easier because you had lived, uh, that is true success. I mean, it's so beautiful, John. I'm going to cry. I mean, it's just that's uh, thank you for that reminder, which I think we all just goes back to everything we were talking about with the connections and the you know, the fabric of our, of our society and of our lives and what, what matters most. I mean, I guess to bring it back home to politics for one second, you know, this is a, a time of great division. You mentioned it earlier, and yet you talked about, particularly as your work as, as a pastor, you know, that you are a problem solver, that you find, you know, you find ways to minister, you find ways to, to help people, regardless of their party affiliation, of course, or any anything else, right? That you're just trying to help people. Are, do you have the hope that we as a society, as an American society right now, that's going through so much, you know, division and, and mistrust of each other and, you know, just a lot that there, that, that, that we can find those connections again, that we can, that we can get back together as, you know, with, with, with some commonalities and some looking out for one another over time. I do. I do have hope because I, I believe we have it in our DNA. It is exactly why our country came together and formed in the first place. It's the very foundational aspect of people coming from all over the world that came here to this land. And, and it wasn't so much 
necessarily the place. It's it's not anything special about necessarily the the dirt that we walk on the the property. But what makes America the people, and it's the same concept in the church. You know, people get confused. They think that the church is the building. Oh, I'm going to church. But actually, theologically, it's never the building. It's the people. The people are the church. And the same thing in America. America is not the borders. It's not necessarily the, the flag. It's, it's the people that makes up America. Now, the flag, of course, is representative of the people. Um, you know, the borders are where we live and, and, um, and we have security, but ultimately it's within us. And so what Alexis de Tocqueville saw in, in his writings of democracy in America, as America was coming together and said, what separates this country from all others, from all others in history and from that time, basically is the fact that the people came together of all types. And, um, and I believe it's in our DNA. And if we can get back to the very foundational aspects of who we are as a people, I think we'll rediscover it again and, and see the strength in, in, that, in that unity. And yes, we're going to disagree. So did, so did all the others before us disagreed, but they, they found out that um, they put, you know, they, they put something higher than themselves individually. And that's that vision. That's the concept. It's really the principle of unity of the, of the united states of that united aspect of, as we strive to become a more perfect union, that's in the very foundation of our documents, that concept of unity. And if you look at community, all you have to, you break it down, it's common unity makes up community. And so with that, that's really what, as far as I'm I'm hoping someday we can, we will start focusing more on that aspect of instead of our individual rights, which is very important, that we also talk about, you know, what's good for, for us as a community as a United States, as a country. And it doesn't have to be exclusive. It doesn't have to be an or. It doesn't have to be an individual right or a community. It can be an and just like it's been proven many, many times in the past. Yeah, I love that. And I I hope maybe that this coming out of COVID, you said we're not going back to what we were. Maybe this provides an opportunity. We can hope springs eternal. <laughs> that we can. Well, Debbie, and I think that's a good point. Look at the world, how divided the world was. And at one moment, the world came together to come together with getting vaccines to address a problem that no one country, no one person, no one individual could do alone. But it took the entire world to come together to address this pandemic. And the idea there is if we can learn anything from this is that if we do come together and unify our efforts, we can solve any problem. You know, we can solve any problem. There's an old uh, Chinese proverb. I, I like this. Um, they, they, it says that 
that the world has everything we need to create utopia or heaven. Okay. But but, But the challenge is this, is that God has given each of us a piece of the puzzle. And the challenge is for us to come together and put that puzzle together to create that utopia to create that heaven. And there, there and is you don't have any luxury of missing pieces because if you ever put the a jigsaw puzzle together and if there's missing pieces, it just takes away the whole aspect of the overall beauty of the picture, right? Mm-hmm. So every human being has a piece of that puzzle and our challenge is to bring everybody to the table to put that piece in in order to create that heaven. And so again, going back to what you're talking about with Senator Manchin at the long term is, yeah, we can get short term gains by pushing through policies and shoving it through and saying cheering. And of course, when the pendulum swings the other way, the other side will do the same thing. But what does that leave us? It leaves us with a lot of missing pieces that we're never going to get there as a more perfect union. Well, thank you, John. I mean, and just beautiful what you were talking about with the puzzle pieces and us all coming together. And um, I really appreciate it. I mean, you really are just, you inspire me so much. And and I feel like your message of calling us all to our best selves uh, is such a needed message right now. And West Virginia is lucky to have you in leadership doing that. And the country's lucky to have you. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for your service. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.